I'd like to ask you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark tonight, to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. I'd like to read just a few verses as we get started tonight. Mark chapter 9. We're going to pick up in the middle of an account of Jesus healing a boy who was possessed by an unclean spirit that impaired him physically. We're going to pick up in the midst of this story a desperate father brings his ailing son to Jesus for help. So Mark chapter 9, and we'll start reading at verse 20. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And I would imagine that there are a lot of us here tonight, though maybe for very different reasons and in much different circumstances, I felt a lot like the father of this boy. On the one hand, desperate for God's help, and on the other hand, really wanting to believe, but for one reason or another, finding ourselves in the grip of doubt. And I don't know, that might even be your situation tonight. You might be someone who is a believer, and yet you are experiencing nagging doubts, maybe even grave doubts about your faith. And if that is the case, I want you to know you are in the right spot this weekend. Because what we're going to work on tonight and in the morning is helping those who maybe have questions or doubts or concerns about their faith to have a more clear and vibrant basis for faith in God and in Jesus Christ. I have to just say personally, I feel very much like I am in the right place tonight because I'm looking out at an audience that is filled with so many friends who have come to mean so much to me for many years. And my only regret is, by the nature of my schedule and timing, I'm not going to be able to be here for very long. But I just want you to know it is great to see you tonight, and I feel your encouragement is I hope you'll feel it from each other. So here's, here's the game plan. Tomorrow, uh, I want to try to help anyone who's doubting or wants to have a, a firmer grasp of reasons for faith. I want to help tomorrow by making a positive case for why you should believe in God and why you should believe in the Gospels. But I also think it's very important as we grapple with questions of doubt to very clearly understand what the alternative is. What if we decide to walk away from our faith? What are the implications? What are the consequences if, in fact, atheism is true? Well, those are the consequences that I want to talk with you about tonight, that I want to present to you. Actually, not really am I going to present them to you. Instead, I'm going to let somebody else present them to you. A person who wrote a book 
from which I got the title for my sermon. A philosophy professor at Duke University named Alex Rosenberg has written a book called The Atheist's Guide to Reality. Now, I know that being where I am tonight, there are undoubtedly many fellow Kentucky fans in the audience, and you are already predisposed to hold anything from Duke University suspect. But it's not because it's from Duke that we're going to take issue with what's in this book. It's because it isn't true. But what I want to do tonight, rather than you just taking my word for what reality is like, if atheism is true, I want to let this very self-professed atheist explain to us what the consequences are. So here is what the book looks like. And here is the fundamental point in which everything else in this book follows. What Rosenberg says is this. There is no God. There is no soul. There are no angels. There is nothing spiritual at all. All that exists is just molecules in motion. Matter. And that gives us all reality. So he says on page 26 and many times thereafter, the physical facts fix all the facts. Now, there's a technical name for this. If matter is all that exists, if particles and molecules are all that exist, this is what is called materialism. No God, no soul, no spirit, just matter, period. That is the foundational launching point for the rest of this book. And since that is the case, the only form of knowledge that counts, because the only thing there is to know is what is natural or material, therefore the only kind of knowledge that counts is what science can give us. And he calls the belief that science is the only way we can know anything, scientism. He says it's the conviction that the methods of science are the only reliable ways to secure knowledge of anything. Now, I want to stress here at the outset that I am not going to say anything critical or negative about science. Many of you know that my wife died from cancer. She fought cancer for many years, and I can tell you we fervently prayed for scientists, especially in the field of cancer research, to find treatments that could help her and, and help delay her death or maybe even possibly give her healing. But the issue here is not can science give us some good things? Can science even give us some truth? The issue here is, is all there is to know what science can teach us? And that's what he says is the case. Now, if you think about this statement, it might, it might occur to you that there is immediately a problem with this statement. Because if you ask this philosophy professor, how is it that you came to know that the methods of science are the only reliable ways to secure knowledge of anything? Did he acquire that knowledge by virtue of a test tube or looking through a microscope? or maybe gazing through a telescope. Do you see that this very statement is not a scientific statement? It's a philosophical statement made by a philosophy professor. And if it is true, then what that means is it turns out there is another way to come to know things aside from science. The reality is science can tell us a lot, 
but they're just some, some things that are not under the gaze of science. When Christy and I used to go to the beach down in Florida, I was always paranoid that my, my wedding band would come off and, and we would lose it. That never happened, but supposing that it did, we could take a metal detector and search the area of the beach where I think I may have lost it, and I could find my wedding band. But I could not take the same metal detector and find the love and commitment between me and my wife. A metal detector is really good at the things a metal detector is made for, finding metal. But there's just a lot more to reality than metal. And by the same token, science is very good at discovering the truth that science can find, which is the truth about matter and particles and stuff. There's just a lot more to reality than just simply that. But we're going to play devil's advocate tonight. Let's assume that Professor Rosenberg is correct. All that exists is matter. All the truth can be found by science. What does this mean? Um, before I give you the first implication, I think it's important to understand, always important to understand, why would people say the things that they do? So why would he be so sure that science can give us all the knowledge that we need? Well, here's what he says in the book. Look, science has uncovered so much about our past history, as he would see it on this planet. And technology has given us so many things, even here in the present. I remember when I graduated college and I started preaching, I decided I'm going to buy a computer. And uh, I went to go to this local computer dealer in my hometown of Kentucky. And he said, well, Shane, you can have this one computer and it has a hard drive. It is a 20 megabit hard drive or the one that's a 40, but you'll probably never need that. And of course, now my phone just blows that computer out of the water. So no question about it. Science, as he would see it, can tell us a lot about the past. It gives us a lot of technology. Now it can even make predictions. You can go on the Weather Channel app and know tomorrow precisely what time the sun is going to rise. I mean, we have to acknowledge, of course, that science can give us a lot of information. So his premise is, look at all the science can tell us about the past. Look at all that can predict about the future. Seems to me like it can pretty much do everything. Well, can it? So let's take him at his word. All that exists is matter. The only knowledge is science. Here are the implications, which, to his credit, he is willing to embrace. Number one, right and wrong do not exist. Now, you and I as Christians, we believe right and wrong exist. And we believe that because we believe God exists. And we believe that God has revealed to us what is right and wrong. And he can reveal that such that it applies to everybody. And in fact, not only do we believe God reveals what is right and wrong, we believe the words of Psalm 34, which say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Not only does God tell us what is good and evil, he is perfect goodness himself. But if there is no God, and all that exists is matter, then here's what Professor Rosenberg says is the case. Atheism rejects the distinction between acts that are morally permitted 
morally forbidden and morally required. There is ultimately no right and wrong. And I want to assure you, this is not simply what a professor says. I have a lot of friends through a hobby that I have who are unbelievers, and I have a chance to interact with them on a regular basis. And so a few years ago, I thought this would be a good opportunity to have a conversation about right and wrong. What prompted it is, you remember this terrible story when the child up at the Cincinnati Zoo fell into the enclosure where Harambee the silverback gorilla was? Very rare animal. And the gorilla was behaving very aggressively toward the little boy, and the zookeepers had to make a split decision, split-second decision. Do we intervene, put the gorilla down, save the boy's life, or take a chance? And they decided to put the gorilla down. So I posed this question on Facebook to my friends and specifically asked for my unbelieving friends to be the ones to respond. I said, okay, you got a choice to make. Gorilla, little boy. I know what choice I would make, and I know why. I want to know what choice you would make. And more importantly than that, I want to know why you would make this choice. So here's some of the feedback I got. One of my friends said, well, it just comes down to this. You defend your tribe, and we are sapiens. The only obligations that would seem to exist are within one's own tribe. So we're on the people squad. He was on the gorilla squad. We take care of the people squad. That was their justification. Another one of my friends, actually from way back in elementary school, said the brotherhood of man, which, by the way, pause, why do we believe in something called the brotherhood of man. You know, you only have brothers if you also have the same father. And the reason we believe in a broad sense in the brotherhood of man is because we believe we all have one father. But if you don't have a father, if there is no God, then what my friend said is, it's just a social construct. And then she threw some shade at me, you know, much like religion that, um, that unites the tribe, the society, and provides for stability and growth. It's a force for good, or it can be, or should be. But it seems to me that the value of human life, any life, anything, comes from that social stability and security, the social norm. So do you understand that what my friends are saying is, the decision to save the boy's life over the gorilla is not because there was some overarching universal principle of right and wrong. It's just because he's on our team, and we've made up this construct that means we should be on the side of the people on our team. Another friend said this, to assign value to one life over another, which was the original question, is relative to each situation in society. So you understand the implications of this. What if your tribe believes that your race is the superior race? And that there live among you people of another tribe who are of an inferior race. And they are a threat to you. Who can say that it is wrong based on this line of thinking for that so-called master race to just decide to wipe out the inferior race? After all, it's a different tribe. I remember a few years ago, Christy and I watched a series on Amazon 
uh, called The Man in the High Castle. Some of you may have read the books or seen the series. I can't honestly recommend it. There was a lot of, a lot of foul language and stuff. But it raises a very interesting question. The premise of it is that uh, the Nazis actually won Second World War. They came up with the bomb first, used it. And the Nazis and the Japanese Empire have divided up America. And the first episode, if I remember right, it's set like in 1962, and uh, a spy for the good guys has a truck, and he's going through Nazi-controlled America. And the truck breaks down, and here comes the Nazi sheriff. And you're thinking, oh, no, this is going to be bad. Uh, the Nazi sheriff could not be. He shares his egg salad sandwich with and helps him repair the tire. And all of a sudden, you see stuff falling from the sky, and it looks like snow, except it's obviously not cold enough to be snow. And the sheriff says, ah, oh, it's incineration day at the hospital. This is the day that we, we take care of those who are too weak to be allowed to live. And I don't know why it was that fictional TV show that made the reality hit me, that that easily could have been reality. And if the idea that, that there is right and wrong is just a social construct, and it really just has to do with your tribe, then how can you possibly tell someone in the other tribe, you shouldn't do that to people? In fact, I posed this question to my friends. I said, okay, so you guys are saying that right and wrong is relative to each culture and tribe, right? Okay, there are tribes and cultures right now that think it's okay to take little girls as slaves and sell them into the sex trade. If right and wrong is just a figment of our imagination and does not apply from one tribe to the other, these tribes are doing exactly what their tribe says you should do. How would you say this is wrong? And my old elementary school friend said, well, maybe I didn't take enough philosophy classes. And I'm thinking, you don't have to take any philosophy classes to know you shouldn't do that. If you believe there is a God who says there are some things that are always right and always wrong. But here is the thing. Do people really, truly believe there is no ultimate right and wrong? I don't know how I happened to see this, but I saw this Twitter account one time that is from um, a woman who used to be a Muslim who's now become an unbeliever. And she has this tagline, awesome without Allah, because I am capable of being ethical and moral without religion or God. I don't need to believe in books written thousands of years ago by misogynistic, that means guys who hate girls, Men who considered women as less human. But wait a minute. Who says that women are as valuable as men? Now, I know what the first chapter of the Bible says. It says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness." And the next verse, verse 27 says, male and female, he made them. So, I mean, I know I believe women are of equal dignity and value and worth to men. But here is my point. Where do you get the right 
to talk about something like misogyny as if it is wrong if you don't believe there is any such thing as right and wrong. But that is the implication if atheism is correct. There is no right and wrong. Now, I want to stress this point. Many atheists live better moral values and lives than many people who are professed Christians. The issue here is not, are there people who are unbelievers who are moral people? I believe that. The Apostle Paul believed that. Remember in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, there is a man here living with his father's wife. And you remember what he says? That doesn't even happen among the Gentiles. So no one is disputing that unbelievers can lead very virtuous, moral lives. That is not the question. The question is, how do you explain why some things are right and wrong? And that is what Rosenberg says you cannot do. So, right and wrong do not exist. And I saw an example of people with this mindset tonight, and it happened right here. And you're not even going to believe this. I got here early. I picked my seat. I put my stuff down. And I step away just for a minute. I turn around, and there's just a bunch of hooligans right where my seat was. And they've taken my stuff. Um, I should have checked my wallet, see if there's any money left in it after this terrible evil that was perpetrated tonight. All right. But I'm a Christian. I'll forgive and forget here, boys. All right. So um, there is no right and wrong. But I want you to know that according to Rosenberg, reality is much worse than this if atheism is true. So think about it. If there's, if there's no right and wrong, how could you hold anybody accountable for what they do? How could you punish a criminal? After all, if there is no ultimate standard of right or wrong, it doesn't seem like you should punish them for choosing to do what actually isn't really in existence, namely what is wrong. But it gets worse than this. Because according to Rosenberg, free will does not exist. And you mean, what? what are you talking about? I chose to come here tonight. No, you didn't, according to Rosenberg. Here's what he believes. Since all that exists is matter, particles, then when I throw this napkin up, then the laws of physics say it will fall. This napkin doesn't choose to do anything, right? It's just a glob of particles. They're already quite wet, but there's a glob of particles here, and they just simply operate under the forces of physics. If all that exists is particles of matter, then what is true of this is true of all of us, which means you don't actually freely choose to do anything. All that you do is simply the result of the laws of physics. You may think you have a mind that makes choices. You just have a brain. You have globs of matter, and the laws of physics work on those laws of matter. Now, of course, you and I as Christians believe not only that there is a God, but we believe he has created us with a soul. And then in the soul, we make choices. We make decisions. In fact, we even make decisions contrary to what the body wants. This is what the Bible calls the difference between living according to the fruit of the Spirit versus the works of the flesh. But what Rosenberg says is, there is no such thing as a soul. There's no such thing as spirit. There's no such thing as God. Instead, he says, every state of my brain is fixed 
by physical facts. There is no free will, just the feeling or the illusion of it. That's why I don't see, I don't know if you can see the subtitle of his book. It's Enjoying Life Without Illusions. So therefore, free will doesn't exist. But I would say to you that it gets even worse than this. You might be sitting there thinking, come on. I'm thinking right now about choices I made today. How could he say that free will doesn't exist? Well, here is a picture of one of my favorite thinkers contemplating one of my favorite thoughts. Now, let's just contemplate what the world is like if what Rosenberg says is true. Homer here is thinking about a donut, which we would all agree is just matter, clumps of matter, clumps of sugary, fat, wonderful matter. But that's all it is. It's just matter. Now, if what Rosenberg says is true, then Homer does not have free will. He's just a clump of matter like the donut. Donuts don't choose to do anything, right? How about this? Do donuts think about anything? No. And if Homer's mind is just his brain, which is just the same thing as a donut, then does Homer think about anything either? So here is what Rosenberg says. How can one clump of stuff anywhere in the universe be about some other clump of stuff anywhere else in the universe? You may think you're thinking about something, but that's as silly as imagining a donut thinks about something. I know, you're looking at me like, you got to be crazy. This not, No, he really says this. In fact, I've often thought if you went into his office and you said, uh, Professor Rosenberg, what are you thinking about? There is only one consistent answer he could give, which is nothing. Exactly. Because you can't think about anything as just something that is purely material. Consider, though, as Christians, we believe, like Paul says in Romans 7, there's a law in my mind and I want to do it, but then there's another law in my flesh and there's this conflict, which I think is something all of us intuitively understand takes place. But according to Rosenberg, you don't think about anything. And you're thinking, no, wait a minute. I know I think about stuff. I'm doing it right now. I'm conscious of it. Well, guess what? Not only does thinking not exist, it gets worse. Consciousness does not exist. After all, is this donut conscious of itself? Does the donut go, oh, I'm about to be eaten? Does the donut go, I'm covered with frosty, delicious icing. No, it doesn't think anything like that because it's not conscious. But if there's no difference between the donut and Homer Simpson, then Homer Simpson cannot be conscious of anything either. So he actually says this. He says, when consciousness assures us that we have thoughts about stuff, it has to be wrong. Now, I will concede one point to Professor Rosenberg. Sunday mornings, as I gaze out at the audience, 
There is some debate as to the level of consciousness uh, when I look at the audience, when they're hearing me talk. But even when I'm done, that consciousness at least will reemerge. But what he is actually saying is, you do not have a conscious experience. So all the things that you think you experience, like my man down here, he's wearing solid, he wanted to wear his red kicks tonight. He's ready to go, all right? And the man next to him, he's got his green ones on. But you see, color is a factor of conscious experience. You don't actually see that. You think you saw red shoes, you don't. Because you are not thinking about anything. You're not conscious of anything. If I lost my cool after the terrible theft that took place as my seat was stolen from me, I went on over and took a swing at these guys and they blocked it and punched me in the nose, I only have the illusion of pain because pain is a function of consciousness as well. So he says this, there is no self, no soul, no person. Scientism must firmly deny its existence. The self, as conveyed to us by introspection, is a fiction. It doesn't exist. Now, I want you to know I am having some fun with this tonight. I can't deny that. But there is something serious here. I have friends who've decided to give up their faith. But I don't think they've understood exactly what they are accepting in its place. So here's a way to illustrate <clears throat> where Rosenberg is coming from here. How many of you guys have ever seen something like this before? And you all ever seen, all right, see your hands. Tends to be the older folks who see this, but some of us, the younger ones. This is when you go to ER, or in my case, I go to my uh, arthritis guy, and they do x-rays. First thing they do, I go there, I sign in, I go get x-rays. And uh, one time I got an MRI. So they look at my knees. They see my knees, clears, clears a bell. But in addition to that, they always say something like, on a scale of one to 10, or frowny face to happy face, what is your level of pain? Now, here's my question. Why do they ask me that? After all, they have seen all of the material thing that there is to see. They've looked at my joint. Why are they asking me? Because the underlying premise here is, in addition to the physical side of you, there is a conscious side of you that no x-ray and no MRI machine can examine. And so they have to ask you how you feel. Because you are not just simply the matter. On the other hand, if all you are is matter, then asking you how you feel would make about as much sense as asking how the ghost inside of you feels. Or as... One writer puts it, it's a different writer, but takes the same view that Rosenberg does. The absurdity of saying nobody has ever felt a pain is no greater than that of saying nobody's ever seen a demon. You might as well believe in demons, in other words, as believe you have a conscious experience of pain. It would make it simpler for us if you would say, my sea fibers are firing. So, Rebecca, this is what I was talking about at supper. Please, as a nurse, 
When your patient comes in in excruciating pain, don't say to them, nah, it's just your C-fibers firing, all right? Because they might be, but in addition to that, there is a conscious experience of pain. So, right and wrong do not exist. Free will does not exist. Thinking does not actually exist. Consciousness does not even exist. But you know, there's a sense in which this all gets much worse. Do you remember at the start when I said to you, the reason that Rosenberg believes that there's no God is because he believes that matter is all that exists and science can give us all information that is true. And you remember he said, the reason it can do that is because we have figured out so much about the past and we can predict so much about the future. Consider this statement. Because he does not believe we can think, he says this, science must deny the basic notion that we ever really think about the past and the future. Do you see the problem here? If the underlying premise of your point of view is science has all the answers because of all we've been able to learn about the past and the future, but then you turn around and say, of course, we can't really think about the past or the future. Guess what you just did? You just pulled the rug out from under the entire premise of your position. And so scientism then is simply self-refuting. Now, uh, Brother Stevenson down here made this joke about you have a test because you had blanks to fill in. You pour, put upon people. I actually had to listen and fill in blanks that I hear. So here's the final exam. Since you want to play hardball, here's your final exam tonight. And I'm going to set the exam up by sharing a childhood memory. When I was in the third grade, a bunch of us at elementary school were sitting at the same table. And my friend John Brooks, right across the table, had the crayons. And I said, hey, John, could I have some crayons? And he said, no. And I said, wait, I just want to have some crayons. He said, no. And so I reached across the table and I started wringing his neck. And it was not a highlight in my school career. Ms. Wilson came and she must have liked me because she just said, stop it. I, I did not actually get punished for that. But anyway, so I would just say this. Don't take my crayons, all right? If I want the crayons, you better give them to me. All right, so here is the statement I want you to consider with me tonight. <clears throat> I am reflecting on whether I should have chosen to cause pain to John Brooks to get the colored crayons. If what Professor Rosenberg says is true, if atheism is true, how much of this statement actually makes sense? Well, first of all, remember he says there's no right and wrong. Do you see a word up here that reflects what you should and should not do? Yeah. So, got to scratch that off. And then remember he said that not only is there no right and wrong, there is no free will. So, I have to scratch off the have chosen since I didn't really do that. It was just the laws of physics working on me to wring his neck that day. And then he said not only is there no free will, there's no thinking. So I'm not reflecting on anything for sure. But also remember he said there's no consciousness. 
which includes things like the sensation of pain and personal identity. Remember he said there's no self, so I'm going to have to eliminate to cause pain to John Brooks. And since color is a part of conscious experience, I have to eliminate that as well. So do you see, ladies and gentlemen, that if atheism is true, all that is left to reality is crayons, uncolored crayons, or other globs of matter like it. Now, here is the thing. I don't think anybody really believes this. I think even my most dyed-in-the-wool atheist friends at some level believe that I have conscious experience of things and that I can think about things and that I have free will and there is right and wrong. So I want to leave you then just with two big picture implications of all we've talked about tonight. Here is the first one. If we had time for another slot this weekend, most likely what I would have talked with you about is, so far as I can tell, really the only good argument that can be made against the existence of God. And it goes like this. If there is a God, according to the Bible, he is all good and he's all powerful. But evil and suffering exist. And if he's all good, he should want to get rid of all evil and suffering. And if he's all powerful, he could get rid of all evil and suffering. But evil and suffering exist, so therefore such a God does not. And I would bet all of us here, if you've gone through something like I did with my wife, you certainly, you feel the force of that argument. But here's the thing. There are two things that that argument presumes. Number one, it presumes there is such a thing as evil. Because you can't talk about the problem of evil unless you have some way of accounting for it as actually existing. And number two, it says that there is suffering, which again means you have some basis for describing the conscious, real experience of suffering. So you understand then, if atheism is true, that argument can't even get off the ground because there's no reason to believe there is anything good or evil or there is any such thing as suffering. But here is the other thing that I want to just say to all of us tonight. I am presuming most of us here are believers tonight. You certainly sing like you're believers tonight. So here is the challenge for us. Uh, I know some of you have friends who are not believers. You told me so before services tonight. And you're wondering what you can do to help them. I would suggest for you that lack of information may not really be the reason that they don't believe. It could be. I think that's possible. But I remember, I would take Christy to, uh, to get her treatments when we lived here in Nashville up at Tennessee Oncology. And then when we moved to Florida, down to Moffitt Cancer Center. Here's the strangest thing I would see. Now, I grew up in a house filled with smokers. I have great sympathy for people who battle that addiction. But you know, it's surreal to drive into the cancer clinic and see staff in uniform 
out in the parking lot smoking. Now, do you think they don't know that there's a connection between smoking and cancer? No, of course they know. The issue is there's more to us than the intellect. There's also the heart or the will. And for some people who don't believe, the issue is not so much an intellectual one, so much as it is, it's tough to make the choice. It's tough. It's tough to believe. That's why a brokenhearted, desperate father can say, Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief. And the way that you may be able to have an influence is not so much by an argument that you make, but by a life that you live and by a love that you show. And to the extent that the issue is the heart, it may very well be that a good-hearted and sincere novice believer will have far more of an impact on an unbeliever than I ever will just by showing and living and loving Christ to a person who is not a believer. And for those of you who are believers, I hope that tonight will help us to embrace that challenge, to think and live and love better than our neighbors. And if you're not a child of God, we would love for you to come to our Lord Jesus Christ tonight and be united with him in faith and in baptism. And if you have not done that, and we can help you do that, we would love for you to come to our Lord Jesus tonight while we stand and while we sing.